for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. All right, folks. All right. Welcome back to the program today on Tuesday. Appreciate you guys joining us. We have a powerful program today. There's a lot of news to get to. World-changing news is happening. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that uh, the world, or at least the Middle East, has never been closer to a World War III type situation as it is right now today at this very moment as we sit here, as we stand here, listening, watching our world pass before us. Uh, a dangerous situation to say the least. We've been warning about this for a while. Uh, we've also been warning about the U.S. position vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel and also vis-a-vis -vis in the Middle East, occupying Syria and so forth. How this is just going to create nothing but problems unless they have uh, some sort of religious epiphany in Washington and realize that maybe it's time to draw down the assets. Maybe it's time to do the right thing, to do the moral thing, to stop antagonizing and backing a genocide uh, in the region. Maybe it's time to rethink the policy. That day is going to come, ladies and gentlemen. Let's hope it comes before a third world war breaks out. There are a lot of people that want to bury all these problems underneath another heap of ash uh, after some sort of major multinational conflagration. I mean, what could be better for the people uh, in the Beltway that profit upon these types of enterprises? Uh, nonetheless, we'll talk about that in a moment. We'll also be joined by Benjamin Rubenstein in the first hour, a great political commentator, a great analyst. He's going to join us. We're going to talk about the situation in the Middle East, who's behind it. Also, the U.S. position with Iran, increasingly precarious. None of it makes sense. What we've told you why, and we'll continue to tell you why, but uh, my goodness, uh, it is not looking pretty right now. And in the second hour, we'll get uh, some updates from Basil Valentine, mainly on the Middle East, but also uh, we'll go into British politics, how this is affecting uh, their situation there. David Cameron's made some comments about a Palestinian state. My question is, what state? What's left of a state? Anyway, it looks like somewhat of a conciliatory position, maybe some sort of strategic move. The British government realized they threw their lot in with the genocidal maniacal regime in Netanyahu and Israel. And now they're realizing the cost of that is profound internationally. So you start seeing rear guard action now. We'll talk about that with Basil. I'm sure he has something to say about David Cameron, <clears throat> Lord Cameron, I should say. He's been upgraded, Lord Cameron. <laughs> Oh, so in the second hour, Blake Lovewell is going to talk about the World War grift. How do you profit upon World War III? Well, you'd be surprised. It's not all going to be devastation. For some people, it's going to be a big payday. We'll talk to Blake Lovewell about that, our uh, cri resident crypto aficionado and uh, resident financial observer. Won't call him an expert. He is an expert, but I won't call him that. He doesn't like that. He likes to be called an observer of events and phenomenons. So that's what we will call Mr. Blake Lovewell. And he's also working on a really great piece right now. He told me about on the World War Grift, uh, which we'll be publishing at 21st Century Wire. Uh, there's also a great piece by Dr. Jean Arrington uh, on 21st Century Wire right now. We'll try to get him on the program to discuss this. Uh, it is a brilliant article up at 21st Century Wire on Gaza. Netanyahu has struck Gaza more than once, uh, but then the ICJ ruling came along, and that changes everything. Dr. Jean will tell you why. So that'll be, uh, hopefully we'll get him tomorrow. Uh, to it's a brilliant article, by the way. 
really brilliant. We'll try if we have time during the break to drop that into the TNT chat community. Uh, nonetheless, let's go to the big story and hit this hard. So the United States, as we spoke of yesterday, uh, three U.S. soldiers uh, reportedly dead in Jordan. I don't think it was in Jordan. It was in Syria. But anyway, uh, <laughs> they have to lie because for legal uh, implications, the United States can't have dead servicemen in Syria. That's why there's panic right now. There's a lot of panic. There's a lot of talk of withdrawal behind the scenes. They don't want to say this publicly. Biden doesn't want to appear to be weak, even though it's an illegal occupation in Syria. Anyway, they're just sitting targets. It's target practice for the various Iraqi militias. Uh, target practice. Uh, eventually, it's going to be target practice for the Syrian Arab army, quite frankly. Uh, but they don't even need to do that. They can have others get in and do the job for them. So U.S. servicemen killed. Biden vows a harsh military response. Do they realize what they're getting into here? Do they realize it? War pressure grows as Biden plans military response to deadly Jordan attack. So there's already, there's there's a lie in the headline. This is on Axios. There's a lie in the headline, Jordan attack. I don't think it was a Jordan attack. It was an attack on illegal bases in Syria. But our media can do nothing but lie about reality. Okay, so President Biden is telegraphing a significant military response. So listen, the what they call the pro-Iranian militias or Iran's proxies. I've been in debates over the last couple of days where people are openly saying when Iran hit U.S. troops, Iran didn't hit U.S. troops. These are Iraqi militia who openly want the U.S. out of Iraq, probably want them out of Syria as well. That's why they're weighing in. Okay, they've demanded this even in Iraqi parliament. They've passed multiple resolutions. The U.S. out. The U.S. won't leave. So what does that leave us with? The very dodgy situation. Okay, the United States says they're there to fight ISIS. If you believe the United States is fighting ISIS in Iraq and Syria, honestly, at this point, that old chestnut, seriously, the U.S. is there to preserve isis in the region because without isis there's no foothold for america anymore you see how this works let me explain something isis cannot survive more than two weeks in any area under the control or governance of the syrian arab army okay and do you see a lot of reports of isis marauding around iraq no why because of the iraqi people's mobilization units they flush them out in 2017 and when they appear they get smashed there's loads of pmu units this is why the united states have branded them a terrorist group so the u.s is branding a terrorist group the groups that are pushing isis out of iraq the the groups that spilt blood fighting isis the united states didn't spill any blood fighting isis let's get that clear running ceremonial airstrikes and big sorties for the media flying around bombing mosul in raqqa Okay, who did the fighting on the ground? I'll tell you who did the fighting on the ground. Iraqi PMUs, yes, uh, aided by Iran because the Iraqi government couldn't afford to do it. So Iran helped to bankroll and arm Iraqi militias to defeat ISIS. That happened. Okay, there's also some Iranian special forces uh, mixed among the battles, which Israel is busy trying to assassinate and kill. Okay and Hezbollah from South Lebanon. That's who defeated ISIS. So 
now you have these Iraqi militias. They're still around. They're not going anywhere. And they're hitting these U.S. bases, many U.S. bases in Syria, illegal, illegal occupation. No hoopla at the U.N. about this. No sanctions against the United States for violating the territorial sovereignty of Syria. No, Syria is like a doormat for the West. They can walk all over it, destroy it, carve it up if they want. No, they think they can. They're having trouble doing it. ISIS can only exist in and around U.S. areas that the U.S. controls because the U.S. allows them to be there because their presence justifies the U.S. occupation and keeps the area unstable, keeps the border not porous, unable to do regular trade and commerce, controls the U.S. control the highways through rural Syria into Iraq. So there can be no trade, no fuel. They do that because they're enforcing sanctions. They're enforcing an embargo on Syria. They're stealing their oil. They're occupying Syria's oil fields. They're stealing it and making a cash slush fund out of it, using that for black ops and who knows what else, probably parlaying some of that to Israel. That's why the U.S. are there. It's not for U.S. interests. It's for Israeli interests. Get that straight. So Joe Biden's telegraphing this big response. Oh, big response. We're, we're going to hit them hard and in waves. Do you realize if you start hitting targets in Iraq in waves, there are U.S. bases in Iraq. They will come under heavy attack, sustained attack. These people waged uh, a war of defense for years against formidable fighting forces. They are not going to be deterred at all by the United States. So the U.S. can't just do this repeatedly without consequences, including losing the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. This is going to happen. If they, if they go down this route, do not be surprised. Other U.S. embassies in the region. So then the U.S. will retaliate harder because there'll be pressure to do so from America. We can't stand and let this happen. These uh, pesky Arabs, who do they think they are? We're the world's superpower. You see how the, where this is heading? People like Lindsey Graham and all these other war hawks in Washington, Victoria Newland, they're getting visibly excited. They're feeling that tingle up their leg, that there might be a war, a major war on the horizon. They can see some, some real death and destruction to get their money's worth, some real human sacrifice, especially in developing world countries, lesser nations. This is what excites people in Washington, and unfortunately in London as well. Maybe a little bit less so, but there's plenty of war hawks. There's a whole new class of war hawks in London. And there's a few in Europe, but the further you get into Europe, the more war-weary they are because they see what happened in Ukraine, how the United States and Britain duped Europe and NATO into NATO countries into that losing proxy war. They know the price of war. The United States does not. They will never know because they're protected by an Atlantic and a Pacific Ocean. And it's just as easy for them to wage wars uh, from a distance and to get other people to fight them for them, like Ukraine or Israel or Saudi Arabia case. So that's where we're headed. So is Biden going to hit and hit hard? I have a feeling that he may hit, but not hard. And it's going to be meaningless, like his salvos against the Answer Allah, a.k.a. the Houthis in Yemen, totally meaningless. Just ceremonial strikes. I predict there'll be some ceremonial cruise missile strikes, and that's it. And that's it. 
No airstrikes. They will not fly a plane anywhere near there. Maybe over Israel. Protected airspace. Uh, the, I don't think the Jordanians are going to let the U.S. fly over Jordan to do airstrikes in Syria. I just don't see it happening. It will have to be cruise missiles from U.S. naval assets. But they'll have to get in range. And that could be an issue as well. So is the U.S. ready for World War II? Are you ready for, sorry, World War III? Are you ready? Is the public ready? Do you really want it? Do you really, I don't know anybody who really wants it. But there are a lot of people in Washington that really, really want it. A lot of people in Tel Aviv, they're desperate to bring the U.S. in. Desperate. Desperate. To paper over all their problems and their genocide. Think about that. It's a hard world, ladies and gentlemen. Dangerous world. Getting more dangerous by the day. Let's take a break with TNT, today's news talk. Try to connect our first guest, Benjamin Rubenstein, on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Stay right there. We'll be right back. TNT's Abby Roberts. So this is the headline in The Guardian. Pleasure of sex is a gift from God, but avoid porn. Pope advises. What is it with religious people and sex? Isn't there anything else that's, that's, that's more important to worry about? And this is what, uh, this is what Pope Francis uh, say. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it in an Italian accent just to be even more offensive. Sexual pleasure is a gift from God, but Catholics must avoid pornography, Pope Francis has said. The pontiff... Oh, I'll tell you what, though. He was all for giving people lots of pricks during 2021. Bloody hell, mRNA's fine, but just not porn. Abby Roberts on TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. News Talk Radio listeners are some of the most active and involved listeners of any format. TNT Radio listeners rely on TNT Radio often as their primary source of information. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Plug in. Website. tntradio.live. Check it out. Today's News Talk Radio. It's the coolest. TNT. All right, folks, welcome back. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We're still now number one of this live broadcast. Appreciate you guys uh, joining us. And before the break, we'll connect our guest, Benjamin Rubenstein, uh, just momentarily. We'll get him onto stage uh, in a few minutes. But uh, the subject we're talking about is we have the trigger for a third world war right now. It's not exaggeration. We are closer to that threshold than we've ever been before. As far as I can see, I've not seen it this uh this pro problematic right now where you know one wrong move one one foot put the wrong way on this and the united states could reap a whirlwind the question is how smart are these people have they thought this through do they really understand the strategic vulnerabilities that the u.s has in the region I'd like to think that, uh, you know, between one of the 200 uh, plus uh, members of the United States National Security Council, it's a sort of a, a bloated committee that's supposedly advising the president on, uh, you know, national security matters. I mean, de facto, that's normally chaired by the vice president. So who's the vice president in the United States now? That's not a trick question. Uh, we're told it's uh, a woman named Kamala Harris. 
Kamala Harris, that she was the vice president. So in theory, Kamala Harris is in charge of the National Security Council. She's kind of the chair. Does that scare you, anybody? Are you frightened by that? Um, does that keep you up at night? It should. It should, because you're dealing with somebody there that's probably not qualified for that position, uh, let alone any position, maybe above a local political office or something like that. Uh, but that's what we have. We have an intellectual giant in Kamala Harris in charge of national security and really having the sort of hot bird seat for World War III uh, type situation. So I'll, I'll prove to you how clueless America is. I take the leading media outlets. Let's go for the leading Democrat outlet called Axios. And this is what they say, why it matters. The White House and the Pentagon are hoping to calibrate their retaliation to contain the growing risk of a regional war. So they think by, by retaliating, they're illegally occupying Syria. The locals after six or seven years are getting sick of it. The Iraqis have been occupied for 20 years. They're, they've they've had it, okay? They've had it. So <laughs> so, the, so now starting to, to snipe at the American bases there, which are totally exposed. Iran smashed a couple of them with missile attacks. U.S. never responded. They can't. And so, <laughs> so, so, so the thinking here, and the journalists, so-called journalists at Axios, these people are unbelievable. So the, the, the great minds at these mainstream media outlets. So in order to contain the risk of a regional war, you must escalate a regional war. You see, the logic doesn't quite add up. The White House and the Pentagon are hoping to calibrate their retaliation to contain the growing risk of a regional war. Yes, I've just read that. But pressure for more significant action is brewing on Capitol Hill with hawks pushing for strikes inside Iran. That, ladies and gentlemen, is World War III because if, they, if the United States strikes inside Iran, it's simple. Iran, Iran's not going to retaliate in an irrational fashion. You watch them closely, irrational actor. They will choose a U.S. target in the region, and they will destroy it, and it will be done probably within hours of the U.S. attack. It's very simple. They might, or they might wait a day. Okay, Not very long in this case. Not very long. So pick your U.S. base. So if they strike Iran then Iran will strike a major U.S. base, maybe three or four in Syria. They'll take them out. So the U.S. has a choice. Withdraw and realize you've been occupying it legally. Uh, you've been stealing Syria's oil, or you'll be forced out. And you know how many, how many hundreds of thousands of Iraqi militia will descend on all those U.S. bases? And, and these are hardened fighters. These, these guys can fight. And they're not deterred by the United States, like the Houthis. So the Pentagon on Monday identified the three American soldiers attacked. So <laughs> it's very sad. Uh, it's sad that they're there. Um, no, but they're saying, no, 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 this, they're legal. They were in Jordan. No, the, the base is in Syria, and it stretches over. Part of it is in Jordan. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Okay. It has to be there. It has to be Jordan has to be in the headline to make it legal. Okay. So 40 more service members are estimated as being injured. They're not saying 40 servicemen in Jordan. Did you notice that? Very nice sleight of hand by our mainstream media. Uh, injured where? 
injured in Syria. Isn't that a, a detail that's being omitted here? That's when you know the story is bogus. So, driving the news, we don't want war, but those who are behind this attack need to feel our response, says a U.S. official. In other words, we're not going to be pushed around by these locals, these Arabs. Okay. There have been more than 150 attacks targeting U.S. troops in the region since the Israel-Hamas war began. Another piece of propaganda. No, it's Israel-Palestine. Israel is declaring war on the Palestinian people. Okay, But the Palestinian people cannot declare war because they're under occupation. They are waging a resistance fight for liberation. That's legally what it is. But the media don't really care. They have their narrative and there we go, pro-Iranian militias. Here we go. Pro-Iranian militias in Iraq and Syria. They're not. They're Iraqi and they're Syrian. But that doesn't work either for the U.S. narrative. U.S. officials said Sunday they were still working to determine exactly who launched the drone that hit the U.S. base and whether it was launched from Iraq or Syria. Ooh, that would be inconvenient if it was from Syria. Very inconvenient. Very inconvenient. Okay. So anyway, we'll, 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 Kate, we'll keep on this story and we will come back uh, to it. Well, we're going to hit some of these issues anyway with our next guest. I want to welcome uh, onto the program uh, Benjamin Rubenstein. He is a political uh, analyst and also a contributor to a number of other uh, outlets and platforms. Let's bring him onto the stage uh, if we can to get some further commentary on this. I don't know if we've got him on the line yet. Ben, how are you doing? Here. Good. I'm great, Patrick. Can you hear me well? Yes, loud and clear. Thank you for joining us, uh, Ben. So, you know, we're talking about the escalation of the situation right now uh, in, in the Middle East. It's The U.S. is saying that uh, Iran is escalated, but the rest of the region, Ben, is saying, no, the U.S. is escalating. And the U.S. The US is saying that uh, we need to strike back against these Iranian-backed militias in order to contain an escalation of a regional war. I mean, it's really hard to keep track of who's uh, in in the world in the real world or not on this, Ben? But I don't think Washington is. I really think we're watching uh, something unfold here that it could be potentially tragic. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think what's happening right now could have catastrophic consequences. And the root of the problem is that you know the United States believes that everybody speaks the same language they speak, whereas you know bomb this, bomb that, it's deterrence. But the reality is that that doesn't work in the Middle East. And the, clearly they haven't learned their lesson from Afghanistan. If the U.S. escalates against Iran, against the Houthis, against any members of the axis of resistance, it's just going to have a cascading effect. The reality is, is that these Iran-affiliated militias, as they call them, uh, you know, while they may or may not get funding from Iran or intelligence from Iran, they do operate autonomously and they make their own decisions. The U.S. doesn't understand that because they see proxies in places like Ukraine of theirs and where they have complete authority to, you know, make the decisions for Ukraine. But that isn't the case with groups like Hezbollah and the Houthis. So the U.S. really fails to understand that. And I think that leads to a number of diplomatic and geopolitical uh, complications that end up occurring. And Hamas is yet another example of, of that happening, whereas Hamas acted on their own on October 7th. Uh, and it, it was 
initially when it happened, the, the drums of war were beating against Iran and they've been beating since then. But the reality is Hamas did act on their own and Iran sort of washed the hands of that. I mean, while they applaud resistance clearly, especially now that the death toll is over a hundred, uh, over 25,000 uh, and, you know, many women or children, at least half. Uh, but Iran is still there. Iran is still involved in the axis of resistance. And even if a hot war does, a hot and direct war does start against Iran, Iran will continue to exist much like the, and even more so than the Taliban continues to exist after a 20 or so year war in Afghanistan. Iran is a, a, a mountainous, very large region. It's got a one of the most powerful militaries in the region. It's perfected drone warfare beyond what any other country seems to have done in terms of not only technology, but the actual price of manufacturing. A lot of people will line up the, the national spending, the annual spending uh, to countries and be like, oh, this country has a stronger military because they spend more. But that's actually not the case. The price to manufacture, you know, just a regular Iranian military drone is far less than it is to manufacture uh, a, a sort of like an MQ-9 Reaper. Uh, and it, so they also have the uh, a stronger production capacity. What happens in the United States is that the military industrial complex will sort of price gouge the State Department and they'll, you know, <laughs> do things like charge $5,000 for a screw. Uh, that doesn't happen in Iran. So judging Iran by how much they spend uh, is not the is not the right metric to judge Iran's military by. And I think that a lot of people, such as Lindsey Graham, are vastly underestimating uh, the the consequences of a direct attack on Iran. So, so that's an interesting point. I mean, we'll, let's talk about the the geopolitics of this. But you make a good point, Ben, which is that if someone manufactures a drone that costs, you know, thirty thousand or twenty thousand uh, dollars, that can go then and destroy a U.S. aircraft carrier, uh, which costs upwards of uh, a billion or two, um, right. then you know, in terms of purchasing parity and economic impact. Uh, an overall budget, they laugh at Russia because their annual military budget's about 100 billion per year. And the U.S. is about 1.2 trillion. So the America's always laughing at the Russians that they, they 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 can't possibly field a world superpower military, but they do. And I think it's because of what you're talking about there. So, uh, the, so how how is it possible then, Ben? And let me tell you, uh, ask you this as well, that. You speak to a lot of Americans, I'm sure, you know, just socially through media and so forth. So you should get a kind of an indication of what the knowledge level is on the Middle East, on the region. And uh, it, I found this, tell me if you agree in your experience, when I say axis of resistance, since 2017, this term has been used, at least in our independent media and Middle Eastern media. Uh, when I say that to an American, even people in Washington who I exchange with, they don't know what I'm talking about. How is this possible? And and, and what is that indicative of? What, what's your experience? Well, I think it's indicative of the extreme levels of propaganda. And thankfully, 
alternative media is growing and while there is still censorship on platforms like x we are sort of starting to break through in a way that we haven't before but you know a lot of people will think uh, you know will will think like hamas is the same as isis and you see this rhetoric being used as uh by israel for example and you know you can have criticisms of both groups but they're actually mortal enemies people in the middle east uh people americans when they hear about the middle east they just they think oh okay well there are normal muslims and then there are everyone else you know all the militants are terrorists they don't dis draw any sort of distinction between you know say the houthis and al-qaeda whereas the houthis have you know a very uh liberate liberation oriented ideology uh as opposed to isis who wants to establish you know a caliphate that dominates the middle east i mean these two things are you know opposed in in the most significant way possible while they both are under the umbrella of islam you know uh, uh, isis is a major deviation from uh sort of the sort of the islam that the houthis practice so i think it's unfortunate the the level of propaganda because that propaganda as as most of your viewers probably understand quite well that propaganda is what is used to help manufacture consent for war with countries like Iran and, you know, a, a war with a country like Iran isn't just going to stay in the Middle East. I don't think Iran would directly attack the United States, but independent actors who are against everything that the United States has been doing in the Middle East for decades, especially in places like Afghanistan and Syria, uh, might. Uh, and I think what we saw when we invaded Afghanistan and when we invaded Iraq is that terrorism actually did spike a little bit in the, in the United States. There were terrorist attacks in the United States, and that is a result of bombing people, killing their parents. These kids grow up, and all they know is military occupation and hellfire raining from the sky and their enemy is not in front of them so they'll go looking for their enemy if you give them one to look for and uh on, on that front uh the the biggest source of pain right now in the region uh is the crisis in gaza and i think this is driving a lot of the uh uh, activity and escalation that we're seeing though the u.s won't admit that they're in the wrong and they won't admit that their partner in the region israel uh isn't the wrong either even in the wake of this incredible uh scene at the international courts of justice uh even in the wake of this and the global consensus clearly been there is a global consensus condemning um israel here they're totally defiant in fact they're even targeting un uh, uh relief and works agency uh they're providing aid there there's uh people blockading aid from preventing it from coming into gaza it's an unbelievable thing so all with all of this negativity with all of this toxicity um there's the character of benjamin netanyahu um, who is uh, still the leader uh in israel but for how long and just your take on on his political position his viability um will he be a scapegoat in order to somehow divert attention from other horrors uh clearly he is uh, on a rampage and seems to have a death wish not just for uh himself uh the, his country and really for the whole region it seems your thoughts ben 
Well, I think Benjamin Netanyahu has been on a leaky ship for quite a while. Uh, he's been on, he's up facing corruption charges. He's facing increased opposition, but for him to be scapegoated, there would need to be an entity within Israeli politics, the same or greater influence than Benjamin Netanyahu himself. So while he is facing increasing calls for resignation or new elections, um, he, he seems to be holding on quite well. Um, I don't think anyone's going to, any outside source is going to come in and take him out, uh, at least not at this point. I think that we'll likely see him go away um, if there is an extended ceasefire. Recently, I did hear unconfirmed uh, publications about a potential 45-day ceasefire. That is potentially enough time for Israeli society to sort of sit back, take a deep breath, and think to themselves, hey, this is just not going the way we thought it was going to go. I mean, the IDF is getting rocked in Gaza, and the only response they have is to just slaughter women and children. And, you know, it's been said that for every family, every woman or child you kill in Gaza, you, you create a, a new member of Hamas. And whether that person who later becomes a member of Hamas or a different group that currently exists or a new group that exists later, what what Benjamin Netanyahu's policy has effectively done is ensured militant resistance to the Israeli occupation for decades to come, for a, another lifetime. Some of these children are five years old and have had literally their entire family slaughtered, sometimes in front of them. I mean, they even have an acronym, so only surviving child without, uh, without family, or something along those lines. And so what's that kid going to do when he grows up? I mean, I think Americans need to ask themselves what they would do if that happened to them in America. I mean, it's, you know, Americans grow up with our Second Amendment right. We take, you know, uh, family and national sovereignty very seriously. Uh, and so, you know, put yourself in, in that little Gazan boy's shoes for five minutes, and it's not hard to see what the end result of Netanyahu's policies will be. And one, one thing is uh, a lot of people believe the Democratic administration, that might be uh, a somewhat of a temporary out for them. In other words, if you started a media campaign uh, where there's finger pointing towards Netanyahu and it's almost like directing all the public angst, all the anger at this individual, and then all you have to do is remove that individual from the stage via some kind of maybe judicial, his trials coming up, as you mentioned, in February. And, you know, for the Western public, that, that might be enough because it's not, it's not difficult to lead the Western public on a leash when it comes to propaganda, but then just replace them with another type of a hardliner and kind of carry on, take the focus off it, move the focus to Taiwan or whatever. Um, do you see, do you foresee that as a possibility? I think it's definitely a possibility. My main concern, though, is that Netanyahu has a coalition with people who are, you know, far more openly genocidal than he is. Um, Netanyahu has not tried to destroy Al-Aqsa Mosque since this war started. If something like that were to happen, it 
would inflame the Middle East even beyond the current tensions that we see right now. I mean, we're talking sort of a the spark to a third world war kind of event if that were to happen. And in the meantime, you've got people like Itamar Ben Gavir uh, and and Basil Smotrich who who very much want to do that. And you've got much of the Likud party and other right wing parties who very much want to do that. And those people are in the majority. It's not the progressive Zionists who are in the majority. It's who might say, okay, you know, we need to treat the Palestinians with care and respect, but we're still going to have an occupation. Those people are not in the majority. So, and the people who, who want to end the occupation are virtually non-existent uh, within the Israeli political sphere. Um, so while it's a possibility, I think that even if Benjamin Netanyahu goes away, the risks are extreme. Um, I remember back in 2021, Benjamin Netanyahu was replaced with Naftali Bennett, and it wasn't very long after Naftali Bennett was put into office that he bombed Gaza. Uh, whether he would bomb Gaza to the extent that Netanyahu is, is you know, remains to be seen, or some other person uh, who is not Naftali Bennett, that remains to be seen as well. Uh, but I think what's really more critical here than who runs the genocidal apartheid state of Israel is that Israel has lost credibility in a way that it has never uh, had to deal with before. Uh, on an international stage, as you said, global opinion has turned against Israel. Israel has always been perceived because people fail to differentiate between Judaism and Zionism. Israel has always been perceived as sort of a victim state. Well, that has never been the case. That has been the perception globally. With that perception gone, uh, that is actually a fundamental uh, threat, a, a, a critical national security threat to Israel's uh, very existence. Um, and if they can't find a way to uh, win back at least some of the support or stop the bleeding of their support, uh, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, you know, we could see a massively different political landscape in the United States that doesn't want to keep funding them. Uh, and without U.S. military funding, uh, Israel does not stand a chance, in a, certainly in a war like we're currently seeing. Now, I want to talk about the, uh, the, the, the U.S. political reaction to this, how it's going to potentially affect uh, the current administration, Democratic administration. I want to talk further about Iran. We're joined by our guest, Benjamin Rubenstein, right now. He's a political commentator. Do follow him on social media. We've dropped his uh, ex-Twitter ID in our feed at 21Wire. If you're following us on Twitter, click through Ben, follow him. Let's take a break real quick with TNT, today's news talk, and when we come back, We'll continue this discussion on the Middle East and beyond. I'm Patrick Henningsen. Stay right there. I'm Cal Fire Battalion Chief Isaac Sanchez. And normally we like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourselves and your family safe during wildfires. But given the historic impacts that the weather has had on our state this year, we would like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourself safe during extreme weather. If you reside in an area susceptible to flooding, please take the necessary steps to prepare to evacuate if advised. Make sure you've identified at least two exit routes out of your neighborhood as one of them may be blocked or flooded. As the weather develops, remember to check in on vulnerable neighbors and family members. They may need additional time to prepare for evacuation. 
And just like during a wildfire, if you feel unsafe, please evacuate. You don't have to wait for the order to come. Keep an emergency go bag ready in case you need to evacuate. And always remember to plan for the safety of your pets as well. If you must leave, never drive around roadblocks. It can take as little as 12 inches of water to sweep your vehicle away. And always remember the mantra, turn around, don't drown. Be aware of first responders working in highly impacted areas, especially on the roads. For additional safety tips and updates on CAL FIRE activities, follow us on social media or visit fire.ca.gov. I want to eat, eat, eat apples and bananas. I need to eat, eat, eat apples and bananas. Why can't I eat, eat, eat apples and bananas? Support the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks to help provide meals to those in need. Join us at feedingamerica.org. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to TNT. Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen. We're still in the first hour of this live broadcast. Thank you to everybody in the TNT chat community. That's the little red bubble, your lower right-hand corner when you're on the URL, tntradio.live. If you're listening on the web, if you're listening on the app as well, you can get through to the chat community there. We have a thriving and growing community in there during the live broadcast. That's where you want to be during the show. That's where all the action is. Appreciate you guys in there for keeping it real. Joining us right now is Benjamin Rubenstein, our guest this hour. We're talking about the U.S. orientation with the Middle East. It is looking very, very bad at the moment. Uh, we have a situation after these three dead servicemen supposedly in Jordan. I personally think they were not in Jordan, but they were in Syria. But the U.S. is vowing a Big response to this. Biden needs to show his strength during an election year. So Biden is weak. Biden is weak. This we're hearing on Fox. So they're goading the White House, basically. Uh, telegraphing a big response. I don't think there's going to be a good outcome if there's going to be a big response because there will be a big response back at the United States. They're very vulnerable uh, there as well. On the, on the issue of Israel, Ben, uh, in your opinion, uh, it has shocked me and many others when this crisis unfolded in October to see how quickly, the after being completely propagandized on this issue, totally suppressed, totally, uh, let's say, um, herded into other issues like identity politics over the last couple of years and hating Trump and all of this stuff. In America, they absolutely embrace the Palestinian issue. Gen Zers have embraced it. I am shocked by this because they've overcome all of the mainstream propaganda on this and shown a level of geopolitical awareness that to me is quite encouraging for the future. Okay, how significant is this for the incumbent Biden administration in an election year? What sort of impact do you think this is going to have on the Democrats in general, because they're all in for Israel, both Republicans and Democrats for the most part. But they're starting to, you're starting to see some noises of dissent because the thing is just so outrageously bad. Um, what's your take on, on Gen Zers and Democrats on this issue of uh, Palestine? Well, I think it's a very important point. Uh, and I think it's something that the Democratic Party has 
just ha- didn't see coming, vastly underestimated. And because Gen Z very much does support Palestine. Gen Z wasn't alive during the Holocaust. Uh, so they don't have this idea that Jews are permanent victims like some of the older generations do. And I say this as a, as a Jewish person myself uh, who does not perceive myself as a victim. Uh, and I'm and I'm a millennial. I imagine that the feeling is uh, more natural uh, or innate in the young, even younger generations. Um, I think that you know, for a long time, the Democrats have relied on possibly more than three, but three really large camps of voters, and that is young progressives, blacks, and Muslims. Uh, and they're they're rapidly losing all three of those uh so this is a sort of an achilles heel because not only have all three of those groups have their own personal reasons black people for example are have every reason to be disgusted with somebody like jim crow joe muslims have every reason to be disgusted with genocide joe and young progressives see a genocide unfolding before their eyes and that is a credit to indie platforms like this and others uh, who have exposed this genocide. And not only is Israel losing credibility, but the Democratic Party is losing credibility and mainstream media is losing credibility all because of this. And what I think is going to end up happening is that these young progressives are not going to vote for Joe Biden, but they're also not going to vote for Republicans. So they'll either vote and they're not going to vote for RFK Jr. because RFK Jr. is somehow more of a rabid Zionist than even Joe Biden, uh, at least in words. Um, so maybe they'll go for uh, a Jill Stein figure. Maybe they'll go for a Dr. Cornell West figure, or maybe they just won't vote at all. Uh, and you'll have a generation of young people who are completely disillusioned by the political process. The, there are two sort of roads to travel down I, the way I see it for those young voters. And that's one of hope. We're going to try to create revolutionary change or it's one of sort of nihilism where you're just going to give up on the political process. But either way you cut it, Joe Biden, <laughs> Joe Biden was already not looking good uh, prior to October 7th. And he is looking even worse as this war drags on. Um, in my mind, uh, I think it's uh, very telling that Joe Biden, for the sake of his presidential campaign, isn't trying to swoop in and install a two-state solution or maybe try a little harder because they do talk about trying to, oh, we'll use this as an opportunity to really finally get the Palestinians their two-state solution, but they're not willing to pull the funding on a genocide. Um, because that is what they are doing is funding a genocide. So um, it seems like Biden is willing to forgo a second term for the sake of, uh, you know, Israel. Uh, and I think young voters see that. And it could that not only does the impact of this war affect Palestinians for decades and generations to come, but it also affects young Americans who are seeing what their government is doing, seeing their government uh, you know, I mean, the, while the ICJ didn't straight up say you're doing a genocide, they did say you might be doing a genocide and they did say you have to stop killing Palestinians. 
um, which is, you know, a pretty blanket statement. Stop killing Palestinians. You can't really have a war uh, if you're killing Palestinians, if you're not killing Palestinians, rather. Um, and they see their government just saying, oh, you know, the ICJ is wrong. So, you know, they're just washing their hands on uh, international law. They're washing their hands on any, uh, you know, um, veneer of uh, geopolitical decorum. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, hopefully th those young people don't go down a nihilistic route and just uh, abdicate any political responsibility, hopefully, and I would encourage anyone who's listening to this who might be younger, hopefully they join a revolutionary organization, you know, not I'm not talking about taking up arms, I'm talking about getting the education you need to understand why what is happening is happening, organizing in your local communities, trying to pull votes away from Biden, because that is the only way if we if we stop voting for all these politicians, it's not just Joe Biden, almost everyone in Congress is unanimously lined up behind this genocide. And the only way is that that is going to stop is if people stop voting for them, if people start reaching out within their families and their communities. Uh, it can't just be all online. We have this we have this idea that everything has to be done online because that's where the numbers are. But that's, you know, the, eventually that. Yeah, that's change that's that not... we're seeing online of informate of the information where it has to go out into the real world. No, you're right. You're right. This is one of the big problems right now. Uh, activists are struggling with this. People in politics are struggling with it. All generations are having trouble understanding uh, whether there's utility in the online activity as opposed to what's on the ground, what's real, and making change. You can have thousands and hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter, um, X, but yet you can't change the precinct result in your local community when it comes to an election. Uh, and so, yeah, I think the, the, the power is still locally when it comes to politics. You are spot on there. And really, the, the online activism should complement that, um, certainly for big geopolitical issues. It's helpful for information and things like that, but it's still not going to move votes. Um, we've learned that. Uh, I mean, look, uh, just, I'm getting on a sidetrack here, Ben, but just as an, to back up what you're saying, uh, Ron DeSantis, his super PAC, just burned through over $200 million to get him a distant third in the first two primaries. <laughs> I mean, and, and they had all these influencers they bought on Twitter, all these big accounts. They signed them up as paid surrogates, and they didn't get any votes. And Israel has spent hundreds of millions of dollars on a, a propaganda onslaught online, and they still can't get traction. The, the pro-Palestinian uh, uh, support is burying them, basically. So the, these, these, both of these examples prove that you, know, you, you can't buy, buying influence online or buying traffic online does not guarantee you uh, uh, changing the, the attitudes on the ground. And I so, completely yeah. agree. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go. I think the information war has effective, if you want to call it an information war, I think it's effectively been won by the pro-Palestinian side. For decades, Israeli Hasbara uh, was an incredibly powerful machine uh, that legitimized what was has been happening to the Palestinians for 75 years, almost 76. Um, and that has completely failed despite the uh, militarized psyops, but despite the the uh, 
relationships they have with people like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and Sergey Sergey Brin. The psyops, the the Hasbara, the Israeli propaganda has completely failed, and that has been done partly because of us, but partly because of Palestinians themselves, people like Mortaz uh, Aziz and Wael Dadu. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing their names correctly. Um, but, you know, you can spend billions, hundreds of billions on a propaganda campaign if you want and if you have that kind of money. But when people are filming their own slaughter, it kind of all goes out the window. So the information war is one. Uh, now people have to really start organizing in their communities and, and trying to, you know, start by just your city council and move from there. Uh, you don't have to go for the Congress right away for replacing these Zionists. Um, but that's the only way we're actually going to see change. People yeah, who, you can be, uh, go ahead. Oh, oh, pardon me. You can be tweeting all day. Ben, and you can be retweeting and posting and getting loads of traction. Uh, and there's people doing this, but these people will not go and write their congressman, senator, or local MP. They won't do it. Mm -hmm. So that there's no barrage of pressure coming on elected officials. They can they can ignore the uh, online traffic. So they're not engaging. Some of them are not even voting uh, as well. I know a lot of people, they just don't vote, but they're very active online. Um, so that's to me a big disconnect and I, I think that needs to be somehow addressed or somehow attitudes need to change to, to change. Well, it's Otherwise, that nihilism yeah, that I, I warned the earlier generations about falling into earlier. People will stay in that sort of nihilistic mentality because they think change is impossible, but change is absolutely possible. People, Americans just, you know, we think we're, this is sort of the other half of American exceptionalism where we think we're the greatest. We also think things can't change, but things always change. Things change in other countries, things change in every country in the world. Uh, nothing is forever, um, especially empires. No, that's true. Yeah. Late stage empire. We're witnessing it right before our eyes. All the classic symptoms throughout history of a late stage empire flailing, overextended, attacking and sanctioning its allies as well as its enemies. All the things the United States is doing right now. Sorry, folks, but uh, it's hard to just ignore uh, the obvious that's happening in front of our eyes. History is happening and it's accelerating, uh, Benjamin, uh, as a result of what has happened over the last few uh, months and also a few years so all i can say is hold on tight folks uh things are going to get choppy in 2024 benjamin rubenstein thank you for joining us uh here on tnt today's news talk appreciate it thank you patrick there he goes ladies and gentlemen you do want to follow uh ben on social media uh just go onto our feed and start with his uh twitter account there be there for his updates and what he's posting about that's where the conversation is folks let's take a break top of the hour news headlines coming up and when we come back more on the other side we'll be joined up with basil valentine and also blake lovewell our financial guru of sorts all coming up in hour number two i'm patrick henningsen your host We'll be back in just a little bit. Stay with us.